0: So God is making God's appeal for reconciliation through us. Paul says be reconciled to God. And when we talked last week about atonement, we talked about the essence of that, meaning reconciliation. Jesus says in John 17, and we just overheard it in the midst of his prayer, that they may be one as we are one. Jesus is praying for oneness. And what does that look like? That they may be in us as we are in them. I am in you, and you are in me. Jesus is praying for this kind of mystical. Oneness, which has so much to do with the goal of what we've been talking about in this series. Last week we began this series on the house of atonement and we started looking through the windows with this idea that we can understand the cross of Jesus better if we look through all the angles and windows and glimpses that people have used to describe it over the course of of Christian history. And we talk, started with this idea of substitution that many of us are familiar with, and then one angle on substitution that's become one of the most popular views of substitution and atonement in the world today. It's a pretty new view, it's about a thousand years old, uh, but not two thousand years old. And it's this idea that Jesus died on the cross, was sacrificed on the cross to appease the wrath of an angry God. Now, I'm not sure if you picked up on this, but where we were leaning toward the end of that is this radical idea that God didn't so hate the world that he killed his only begotten son, but that God so loved the world that God gave God's one and only son so that when we trust in Jesus, we might begin to experience the life of the ages. That's what eternal life means there. The life of the ages beginning now and going on into eternity. It's hard for us to understand what atonement is about if we don't understand the goal of it, how it works. To understand how it works, we've got to understand where it's supposed to be taking us. God has a plan for the world. God has a plan for us. God has a plan for us in the world. And part of that plan, where we're ultimately supposed to go and even begin to go now, is about something that God wants for you that may seem a little bit uncomfortable to you as Baptists. Now, I know there, we're not all pure Baptists in the room. Some of you have come to us with mixed backgrounds from other places. I myself was confirmed in the Methodist Church, so I get that. We have different views represented here, but, but those of us who are at least mixed Baptist or, or maybe purely Baptist are going to maybe struggle instinctively with what I'm going to say to you that God wants for you this morning. And that is that God desperately wants you to dance. Now, some of you are doing that anyway. You've been doing it for years. It's one of those things you don't pay attention to. I don't see anything like that in the Bible. In fact, it's quite, it's quite the obvious. With Baptists, Baptist, we struggle with that. The, the, when I went to college at East Texas Baptist University, it was prohibited on the campus there. It was prohibited on the campus. You could not dance, you could not hold a dance. What you could do was have a karaoke party off campus where people moved in a way that looked an awful lot like dancing. (laughs) I was dating a girl at Baylor in my freshman year of college and I would go there where you could, even though you were Baptist, dance, but that was a relatively new thing. It had made the news Baylor was going off the rails. They were now allowing dancing on their campus. But even Baptists who allow dancing in that way and the Methodists that I was a part of when I was a teenager and we, we, we went into that church and they would have dances and I would feel like, wow, this is are we supposed to be doing this? But even then, you had to leave room for the Holy Spirit during the slow dances. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about. The younger people don't know, but you're not leaving enough room, they come and tap you. Leave room for the Holy Spirit, you know. But really, the biblical idea is that when we understand how it is that God wants us to dance, what we're doing is we're making room for the Holy Spirit. And that's a huge part of why God wants us to dance. In fact, throughout Christian history, throughout Christian history, and you may not hear a lot about this here, this view we're going to talk about today is really prevalent in the Eastern Orthodox Church. There's this term that really is about God not only dancing, but being a dance. It's called the perichoresis. The word perichoresis is... Is a word that's used to describe the dance of the Trinity. It's, it's, it's a word that's used to describe the social nature of the Trinity, and it's it's this idea that throughout time and even before time and after time, beyond time, God has existed in this perfect Father, Son, and Holy Spirit union of interdependence, intermutuality. It's an interrelationality, an interpenetration. That has been called the dance of the Trinity, the perichoresis. that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are existing throughout time in this kind of giving and receiving, loving and sustaining and supporting relationship. That that is the essence of God. That in essence, God is a dance, and that God created you to be a part of that dance. You're, we're supposed to be dancers. We're supposed to be dancers. Now, when I went to ETBU and they had those rules about prohibiting dancing, I didn't have a problem with that, because not because I'm Baptist, but because I'm awkward. And I feel pretty awkward on the dance floor. So this idea of God wanting us to dance is a little uncomfortable for me, too. But there have been a couple of times in my adult life where I chose to dance. One of those times, and it was because of my wife, it was at our wedding reception. Because I knew that my wife, like God, likes dancing. And she wanted me to dance, and it was our wedding, and I feel like maybe she earned it. She deserved it. <laughs> so I, I, I shed my inhibitions, and I got there, and I said, and by the way, this was still Baptist enough that there was, there was no beverage to help me shed my inhibitions, and, but I shed my inhibitions, and I worked myself up, and I got out there, and I jumped around, and I flailed around, and, and looked as goofy as I do, dancing, and just let myself go and had a good time. Happened at my brother's wedding as well. But this, this, this is not easy for us. It's, it's, it's awkward. And yet this idea of perichoresis really points us to one of the windows, really both of the windows that we're gonna look through today. One of them is called theosis. Pull this down. There's something in here we're meant to slowly see, by the way, and the other one is called recapitulation, which is the means for theosis or atonement. We're talking about theosis, this very prevalent idea in Eastern Orthodox Church. We're talking about what some people have called divination, or the idea that through the atonement we become, as some people have said, God or God-like. Athanasius had this really disturbing phrase that said, God became man so that we could become God, and as Baptists we're really uncomfortable with that too. We don't like this idea of us being God. Our, Irenaeus said something more similar to what you heard in the passage of Scripture today, and you'll find this really throughout the New Testament. He said, He became like us so that we could become like Him, He became as we are so that we could become as He is. And really the idea behind that isn't so much us becoming God, or even God-like in a sense, though there is that kind of sentiment in the idea of being created in the image of God, but it is the idea of union. Ultimately living in full and complete union with God as Adam and Eve, as humanity did in the beginning. We'll turn back to this creation text quite a bit, actually. We know in the beginning that we lived in this place called Eden. Did you know that the word Eden literally means abundance? Signifying to us that those early human beings were living in a state of abundance. Abundance of shelter, abundance of food, vegetation, abundance in every way imaginable, including, and most of all, their relationship with holy God. Or in other words, you might say something like this. In the beginning, they had life and they had it more abundantly that sound familiar? Why did Jesus say he came? that They might have life and have it more abundantly. And in the idea that Christ is presenting there, that has a lot to do with union. That seems really strange. I'm praying, Father, that they might be in us as I am in you and you are in me. We would be in them and they be in us. I'm praying for the perichoresis to be made whole again. You See what I'm saying there? He made him that knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is praying for union. Or more importantly, Jesus is praying for reunion, which is another way to understand the atonement. And it's actually the way Jesus tried to get us to understand the atonement. Do you remember one of his most famous parables? Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a parent who's sitting on a porch, desperately waiting for their child, their wayward child, to come home. The child has gone their own way, turned away from that parent, and every good thing that they offered them in their life, and they've gone off and they've lived a life where they've squandered their life so much that they're now at the point of death and humiliation and shame, and somehow they hit rock bottom, and when they hit rock bottom, they start edging their way back home. And the whole time that parent is sitting on the porch watching, all these years, sees that child coming in the distance, doesn't wait for him to turn the corner, breaks off the porch, runs and embraces that child, start the music, spread the feast, do you think there was dancing at that party? There probably was. It's a celebration of reunion. And that's what Jesus is praying for and that's what Jesus is longing for. But Jesus knows that we can't get there on our own. And so the gospel tells us that Jesus did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. Last week we talked about that in terms of substitution. And that's a little bit about what we're talking about today, but the, the, the first window, the other window we're looking in today is actually one that all of the theories can fit into. It's the oldest atonement theory in the history of the church. It's called recapitulation. Now, I can't tell you how many people have talked to me about big words this week. <laughs> Say that with me. Recapitulation. Recapitulation. The idea of recapitulation is found somewhat... In Romans 10, when Paul talks about Jesus being the end of the law, only the word end doesn't mean it's over, like we think of when we think of end. But the word end there is the word telos, which means fulfillment or consummation or embodiment or summing up. In other words, the idea of recapitulation is that Jesus, not just on the cross, but with his whole life, has taken on our humanity. The idea is that Jesus has identified with us in order to incorporate us back into God. That Jesus has somehow, by taking on our humanity, recapitulated the life not only of Israel and you and me, but every human being that has ever existed. That title, Son of Man, in the New Testament can also be translated human one. That Jesus has somehow taken us on and taken us over, and as we move toward the end of time, we're being recapitulated back into the presence of God by Jesus. And the whole story of the Gospel, not just the end, is supposed to bring us into this. For instance, last week we heard as we moved into the Lent that that common Lenten text about Jesus full of the Spirit going into the wilderness to face temptation. Now, in the Bible, we don't talk about this much as Baptists either, but there is the idea that we're not just being forgiven by what's done on the cross, but we're being delivered by the powers and principalities. And the three main powers and principalities are sin, not just sinning, but sin, the power of sin, the power of death faced on the cross, and the power of the devil. We don't like to talk about him much. Jesus goes into the garden, goes into the wilderness. You remember what happened in that early story? The human beings turn away from God and they're exiled from that abundant life into the wilderness. Then later Jesus, the human one, goes into the wilderness and faces the evil one. In a way that is supposed to recapitulate or transform the fallenness of Adam and Eve. The whole story is really like that. And it's really hard to understand this idea, but what, we don't have to understand it for it to work. That Jesus took on our humanity to redeem every inch of it. That Jesus faced off all of our enemies to create victory where we had defeat. Identifying with us fully, going all the way down from birth to death into our humanity so that he could free us for reunion with God. I said earlier that as an adult, I don't dance much. But that's kind of not exactly true. I actually dance a good bit. Not on a dance floor, not at weddings. If you invite me, I'll stand over to the side like a junior high boy. (laughs) Or a Baptist pastor. (laughs) But I dance an awful lot in my kitchen and in my dining room with my children. We've got one of those Alexa Echo Dot things, and you can put on the happy playlist. They're smiling because they know this, right? One of their favorite moments with Daddy. And Daddy dances in a way that's sillier than he did at his wedding reception. And we dance together, and I don't have to get rid of the inhibitions because the inhibitions are gone. There's a freedom, there's a silliness, there's a a roaming around, there's laughter. And I, I love dancing like that. I love dancing with my children, and so does God. That's part of the point of all of this. And why God has been willing to go through whatever is necessary to create the movement back, to recapitulate our lives in Christ. You've heard that word a lot in the New Testament. Through Adam, all were made dead. In Christ, all are made alive. Jesus has recapitulated our lives so that we can live in union with God. It's a path that we couldn't have created on our own and so Jesus has created the path. It's a bridge that we needed to cross over but we couldn't create it on our own so Jesus created the bridge. Jesus did everything necessary to blaze the trail for us to be able to come from that place of death to this place of life and when He sees us out there on our way, He's ready to jump off the porch and run down the road and receive us in his embrace, and spread the feast, and start the music, and do you think there will be dancing? You better believe it. This is the good news of the gospel. And even now, God is making his appeal that we might receive it. That we might Receive reconciliation that we might begin to live into that oneness day after day after day. If you've never invited Christ to help you do that, the invitation is always alive, even as it is now. And I'd love to pray with you about that. In fact, let's pray together now as we continue in worship. Holy God. We know that apart from you, we cannot experience the abundant life because the abundant life is with you. We were created to be with you, to live with you, to dance with you. And so apart from you, we cannot be who we were created to be. That abundance, that oneness, that life of the ages is found in you and you have made a way for us to receive it with you. And so, God, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, any of us who need to take another step into that life, that you would draw us there. That we would hear the music. That we would sense the smell of the abundant life feast. And that we would be ready to embrace you in the life you have died and rose again to give us. This we pray In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.